Our scripture reading this morning is from James 1, verses 1 through 18. James, a servant of our God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of the creatures. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for being our Father. We rejoice this morning that you are not like our earthly fathers in this way. You never change, and your goodness never fails. Lord, being a father, I know <laughs> we fall far short, but you never do. You are always perfect in the way that you care for us as your children. 
And Lord, as we approach this text and, and this book for the next several weeks, we rejoice that you don't want us to be left alone to fend for ourselves in this fallen world. You want us to know how to live. Thank you for guiding us. Thank you for shepherding us. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place and give us his righteousness. Thank you for sending your spirit so that we could be empowered to obey. And thank you for giving joy even when life is hard. Lord, I pray that this morning you would unlock your truth to us. Help us to see not just what is true, but you. And I pray that by your spirit, you would empower us to respond well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The most valuable things are the things most likely to be counterfeited or copied. Have you noticed that this is true? When you go to the furniture store to buy a table or a nightstand, the the paper-thin veneer on top is typically not going to, it's not meant to look like yellow pine, right? No, it's going gonna, it's gonna to look like walnut or, or quarter-sawn oak. There are places that you can go to buy knockoff clothing, but you will never find a fake Walmart brand hoodie in these places. You will never find a fake Timex watch. No, there might be a fake Calvin Klein hoodie or a fake Rolex watch. The most valuable things are the things most likely to be copied or counterfeited. Some of these fakes are really good. They're really hard to distinguish from the genuine article. Uh, I used to work at a jewelry store in the mall. Believe it or not, you do what you have to do. And it was always amazing to me the little tricks that the manufacturers would uh, use to give a false appearance of value. Man-made sapphires or emeralds, all manner of diamond substitutes, gold jewelry that had been shaped in such a way as to appear substantial when really it was uh, as light as a feather. Why is that? Because these substances, gold, precious stones, are valuable. The most valuable things are the things most likely to be copied or counterfeited. Friends, you'd better believe that just about everything in this book has been counterfeited. Over and over again, and if you're not careful, you may find yourself thinking that you've got the real thing, the real Jesus, the real faith, a real relationship with God, but it may be too late when it dawns on you that what you've actually got is something that is worse than worthless. And the same is true in the lives of so many who profess to follow Christ. When it comes to a critically important quality, every Christian must pursue and possess the quality of wisdom. It is that precious. The most valuable things are the things most often copied and counterfeited. Christians all over the world are constantly lured away from real wisdom toward a counterfeit. But the good news is that God doesn't leave us on, uh, on our own. He doesn't leave us to our own devices where these things are concerned. He gives us in the scriptures, and particularly in this short cyclical letter, 
the letter written by a man named James, a sort of primer for discerning and developing real wisdom. That's why I've chosen the title of this sermon series, The Real Thing, New Covenant Wisdom from the book of James. And it's my prayer that in a world, yes, in a Christian subculture that is too often filled with fools, that we here at Indian Creek would learn to recognize and embrace the real thing, real wisdom. You say, what do you mean by wisdom? What does that word even mean? It's just kind of a churchy-sounding word. Well, if I can just put it very simply, wisdom in the Bible is a specific type of knowledge. You see, there are three types of things that you can know. Knowledge basically comes in three forms. You can know facts, uh, something is true or something is not true. Uh, One plus one equals two. I I can know that. That's a fact. You can know persons. I, I know my son, Austin. We have a personal relationship. It's more than just the facts. Uh, I know what he looks like, and I know when his birthday is, but I also know him. This is a relational knowledge. I can know facts. I can know persons. And then thirdly, I can know skills. I can know how to do something. I can learn how to tie my shoes or how to cook a steak or how to write a poem or how to shoot a free throw. That's a type of knowledge. It's not just knowing the steps in the process so you can repeat it on a quiz. It's not just describing the, the mechanics of how the basketball leaves your hand and enters the hoop. It's actually the skill to do it. That in, in and of itself is a type of knowledge, and that is what wisdom is. It's not knowledge of facts, although it does require this. It's not knowledge of persons, although there is a person that you'll need to know in order to really possess wisdom. It's a knowledge of how to. In fact, when Greek-speaking Jews translated the Hebrew Bible into their language, uh, it's this very word, the same one that James uses here in James chapter 1, that they used to describe the skill of people like Bezalel. You remember Bezalel from the last couple weeks? He was the one who had the skill to oversee the building of the tabernacle and uh, he, he had wisdom, in other words, to oversee it. The, the craftsmen had wisdom to be able to create the curtains and the railings and the sculptures. All of that took skill. Same word is what James uses here in chapter 1, verse 5, and throughout the letter. It's just that the skill uh, that James is talking about in these five short chapters is not the kind of skill that you need to build a house or a tent or bake a cake or anything like that. It's the skill of living as a follower of Christ in a fallen world. This is what James is going to give us. He's going to help us discern how to live skillfully, how to navigate the difficult circumstances of life in a way that pleases our Heavenly Father. That's what we get from the book of James. And that's why the title of this particular message begins with the phrase, how to. How to have joy when life is hard. Because God in his grace wants you to know how to live. Everybody knows uh, that difficulties are coming. The first reality that he wants you to know how to navigate is the reality that suffering is a part of everyday life. That difficulty is a part of being a human being. Everybody knows that. Everybody goes through difficulty. And there are ways of dealing with that reality that will seem to make sense to you, but will actually leave you worse off than you were before. And I don't want that. God doesn't want that. He wants to guide you 
in dealing with difficulty. And not only that, but according to James 1, 2, he actually wants you to have joy when life is hard. When life is difficult, he wants you to have joy. How's that supposed to happen? Well, today, we're going to sort of unpack these paragraphs, these uh, phrases and, and sentences that Rhonda just read for us in the first half of James 1 in order to glean five principles, five ways for, for us to live joyfully in the midst of trials, five ways that we can actually experience true joy even when life is hard. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain a portion of the text, and then I'm going to give you the principle, and then we're going to take that principle and apply it to our lives directly today. So in the first place, look with me at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials. I think the very first thing we need to observe about this counsel is how it directly contradicts our typical reaction. Have you noticed that? You go through a trial, you go through difficulty, and what do you do? Uh, Is it natural for us to count it all joy? Is it natural for us to consider it pure joy, as some other translations uh, put it, when we go through trials? No, our natural tendency is going to be to be unhappy. It's going to to be discouraged, to try to escape as quickly as we can, to focus on nothing else but the immediate relief. Matter of fact, when people come into my office during the week and they share a problem that they have, that is almost always what they want immediately. How do I get out of this difficulty? That's the goal. And it's very rare that any of us immediately react to trials in the way that James commands here. We just want to get out. But James says, don't do that. Why? Well, the key is that you have to know something. Verse 3, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, thankfully, it doesn't produce steadfastness. I'm very glad for that. It produces steadfastness. Then verse four, steadfastness is actually gonna make you complete and whole, lacking in nothing. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this, but I think it's very clear what James is saying. He's saying, you're going through something bad, it's a trial, it, it, it's, it's a temptation, but the bad thing that you're experiencing has a very good purpose. God is doing something with it. He's giving you greater endurance, and, and that endurance is gonna make of you everything that God has intended for you to become. You're gonna be complete. Here's the principle, principle number one. You can have joy when life is hard if you understand the value of a trial. You can have joy when life is hard if you understand the value of a trial. That doesn't mean that Christians are masochistic. We're not gluttons for punishment, right? We aren't going around looking for suffering. In fact, the word in verse 3 translated trial is the very same word used later in the chapter to refer to temptations. These are bad experiences. Uh, This is a word that's used throughout the New Testament to refer to circumstances that sort of trip people up. Uh, The Pharisees tested Jesus because they wanted to trip him up. That's the same word. 
Uh, Satan tempted Jesus, same word, because he wanted to get the victory over him. And James is going to acknowledge that his audience spread out throughout the Roman Empire are going through similar experiences. They are being tempted and tried. Satan is trying to trip them up. The world is trying to destroy them. Their flesh is tugging them away from following Christ. And that's not a good thing. But one of the keys to joy is remembering That even when the powers of evil are trying to trip you up, God is so wise and so good that he's actually using the very same circumstances to bring about a good result in your life. He can do that. And James makes this clear by actually using a a different word. It's the word translated testing in verse 3 and verse 12. Uh, It's a word that means to demonstrate or prove genuineness. So here's what's going on when you face difficulties. Yes, Satan is at work. Yes, the world is threatening you. Yes, your own flesh is trying to draw you away. But through that very same circumstance, God is proving the genuineness and, the, and strengthening you to endure that difficulty. And when you capture the value of that, when you remember that that trial is doing something in you, that that time of testing is going to lead you into all that God wants you to become, You are on your way to having actual, real, genuine joy even when life is hard. See, in our prosperous American context, we have unwittingly fallen into the same way of thinking that was apparently plaguing James' first readers. We tend to believe God's power is only shown when he takes the trial away. And we may be tempted to think that if God really loved us, he would send us some relief. And then when that relief isn't forthcoming... We waver in our faith. But let me put it this way. James is telling us that if we want to see God's power, the place to look is not the bookstore or the conference circuit where wealthy preachers with gleaming white teeth tell us all how to use the Bible to get the things that we want. No, if you want to see the power of God, the place to look is the hospital. The place to look is the nursing home. The place to look is the unemployment line, where believers in the crucible of trial are enduring hardship with genuine joy. This is the power of God. And this is the first step in in having joy when life is hard. Remember that that trial is not a waste. It's got purpose. Our second principle is found in verses 5 and following. When you Uh, get to verse 5, it might seem as though James is just changing the subject and moving on to something completely different, but look a little closer. Uh, He's already said that the purpose of testing is to grow you in your steadfastness so that you will be lacking in nothing. But then in verse 5, he says, you know, there might be something that you do, in fact, lack. Uh, If any of you lack wisdom, he says. That is, if you're experiencing a a difficulty, a trial, part of that trial is maybe that you don't know what to do. Like you're not sure where to turn, you're not sure where to go, you lack wisdom, you don't know how to respond. And once again, James is going to counsel us to do the opposite of what we we otherwise might be tempted to do. So if our immediate tendency when we go through hard times is to despair, the very next thing we often do is to try to figure out how to get out of it and we look to all these different sources of knowledge and wisdom in order to do that to get the guidance that we think we need. But James says, if any of you lack wisdom, call your doctor or your therapist, right? 
If any of you lack wisdom, call up your friend from high school. If any of you lack wisdom, Google it. If any of you lack wisdom, read a book or an article. If any of you lack wisdom, lie awake at night and try to figure it out on your own. Here's the scary thing. All those different ways of dealing with difficulty and not knowing what to do, they actually work a lot of times to a point. I mean, if the point is to get immediate relief, then you can do all sorts of things that will bring that relief. These ways of dealing with our problems often work. But while we're dealing with difficulty in our way instead of God's way, we end up getting that immediate relief at the expense of long-term joy, at the expense of the completeness that God desires to bring about in each of our hearts. If your goal is immediate relief, you can do all sorts of things, but if you want real joy, the kind that is not dependent on things going well, the kind that persists when times are tough, then you've got to do something different. Here's principle number two. You can have joy when life is hard if you go to the right person for wisdom. You can have joy when life is hard if you go to the right person for wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. You wanna know how to navigate trials? You have to go to God. It's okay to check with your physician or your best friend or your boss or your dad, but the only true source of reliable wisdom is your heavenly Father. Start there. So many times we talk about the decisions we need to make as if God is trying to hide from us. As if he purposely makes it harder for us to know what to do. And what James is saying here is that that's not true. God wants to give us wisdom. He freely gives it to all without reproach or rebuke. In other words, God isn't angry with us when we don't know what to do. He expects that. And he is ready and willing to give us the wisdom we require to navigate the difficulties of life. The only prerequisite is we've got to trust him. You want to know why you're miserable in the midst of trials. You want to know why you don't have joy when you're going through difficulty, when life is hard? Why you're too impatient to go to God and ask for wisdom? It seems to me that there are two potential reasons. First of all, it may be that you really don't want wisdom. That you think God is supposed to just tell you exactly what to do, in other words. You don't want wisdom. You just want God to tell you exactly what to do. Newsflash, it doesn't work that way. God, that, that's not wisdom. That's not the skill to live in the way that God wants you to live. That's just telling you exactly what to do. And it may be that God is providing the skill, providing the wisdom that you need to make decisions that please him, but you're not satisfied with that. You're so doubtful of his goodness that unless you have this funny feeling in, in your stomach that you just are paralyzed, you can't do anything at all. You can't make decisions at all because instead of wisdom, you just want to hear the answer. Should I do this, yes or no? Well, here's some wisdom, some skill for you to navigate this circumstance. And we say, God, I didn't ask for that. I want to know exactly what to do. So we reject the thing that God gives us. We reject the wisdom that God gives us to navigate the trial. Second reason we don't ask for wisdom is very simple. It's because we don't trust him. Right? We actually think that God is going to lead us down a path that will be bad for us. 
We actually think that God doesn't have our best interests in mind. You see, once again, our goal and God's goal are often at odds with one another, aren't they? God's goal is to complete us. And so he uses the difficulty to grow us in our faith and our endurance. Trials come, and it's an opportunity for us to say, God, I trust you. This is why he gives us wisdom. If he just told us exactly what to do in every circumstance, that wouldn't be faith at all. That wouldn't require faith. That wouldn't grow us in our faith. That would be uh, just being a robot. (laughs) But genuine tested faith is of much greater value and will bring much fuller joy than just knowing what's coming up next. It's not always easy, but you can have joy when life is hard if you go to the right person for wisdom. Principle number three in verses nine through 11. Look at verse nine. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Uh, like each set of verses in today's passage, James is introducing a, uh, a topic that he's going to kind of develop later on in the book. And so we're going to come back to this and unpack it even more in the chapters to come. But to put it as simply as possible, James isn't asking us to take a vow of, of poverty or at this point to do anything to change our economic circumstances at all. That's not the point of what he's saying in verses 9 through 11. Now, what is he asking us to do? He's simply asking us to change what we value. Reading through the rest of the book, it's very apparent that what James's original audience valued was very similar to what our world values today. They valued wealth. They valued riches, prestige, power. It's not that they were all wealthy themselves. It's, not, it's that they had become preoccupied with that wealth. They operated on the assumption that to be rich is inherently better than to be poor and that you won't really be fulfilled, you won't really be complete unless you have a lot of stuff. And what James is saying is that in order for us to to have joy, we've got to flip that value system on its head. Here's principle number three. You can have joy when life is hard if you embrace the upside-down values of the kingdom of God. You can have joy when life is hard if you embrace the upside-down values of the kingdom of God. Here's what that means. Jesus put it this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, don't be deceived by wealth. Like, whether you are currently wealthy or not, the temptation is going to be for you to, to value riches way more than you should. And so James reminds us of what the prophet Isaiah had said many years earlier. He says, all flesh is like grass, and all the glory of man is like the flower of grass. Uh, We're about to see this illustrated here in in Texas, probably in the next couple weeks, aren't we? It's been raining just about nonstop for a month or so, and everybody's lawn is looking nice and green. But give it about two more weeks, and that grass is going to start to shrivel up. Every part of our life that is tied to the present is exactly like that grass. Before you know it, it will shrivel up, it will be gone, your house will fall apart, your car will rust and wear out, your food will spoil, your clothes will go out of style, your land will go to somebody else, and you yourself will one day leave it all behind. Say, Jake, how is that supposed to make me have more joy? That's actually kind of depressing. 
Here's why this is a gift. Here's why James says to rejoice and boast in these things. When you realize that your wealth or any of the other fleeting values of our age are like withering grass, here today, gone tomorrow, then you can spend your energies and your affections and your time and your talents on that which is truly glorious and lasting. This is what James is saying. He's saying glory in this. The humble are going to be exalted. Uh, The day is coming when the poor in Christ will be unimaginably rich because in him they possess all things. The day is coming when the rich of this world come to nothing, and yet those who are in Christ can rejoice in it because God in his grace has humbled them and caused them to find their identity in something far more valuable than the things in their bank account. Rejoice, boast, not in your wealth, but in God who mercifully frees us from that idolatry. The idolatry of power and wealth and reminds us that eternal things that we can see by faith are far more real than the things our physical eyes behold. You'll never be able to count it all joy. To have joy when life is hard without this perspective. It's not the rich of this world, but the poor in spirit who enter into the joy of the Lord. You can have joy when life is hard if you embrace the upside-down values of the kingdom. Fourthly, notice verses 13 through 15. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Uh, Our translations, or at least the one that I'm reading from, sort of obscure the fact that the word for tempted here in verses 13 and 14 is actually in Greek the same word family that James uses earlier in verse 5. In verse 5, they're called trials, and here we read about being tempted, but these are just a verbal form of the exact same word in Greek. And James tells us that temptation doesn't come from God. In other words, Yes, God is going to allow testing in your life. If you look back up at the previous verse, verse 12, he's going to test you for the purpose of refining your faith and demonstrating that you have a real relationship with him. God's goal is for you to succeed and to pass the test through the powerful working of his spirit. God's not trying to trick you into sinning. Do you see the difference? He's in control of every circumstance that you face, yes, but he's allowing that so that you might grow, so that you might endure, so that you might exercise a stronger and fuller faith, so that you might be complete. Never once has God set out to entrap you in sin. And there are some of you who really need to hear that and think about that and meditate on it because you've experienced so many situations where Uh, an authority was always trying to catch you in some kind of sin so that they could bring down the hammer on you. Maybe your parents were like this sometimes. They were always finding fault, uh, always tearing you down, always eager to show that you had failed. Maybe you had a spiritual leader, maybe even a pastor who was always seeming to have this sick fascination with sin, like, gotcha. Sadly, evangelical Christians lapse into this sort of gotcha discernment. I knew that guy was a sinner. Got him. What James is saying here is that God is not like that. He doesn't have a sick fascination with seeing you fail. 
He isn't drawn to that. He loves righteousness and goodness and justice. He, he loves to see his children walking in holiness. That's his desire for you. No, when temptation is taking place, it's not God that's behind it. Look at verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. It's not God that's trying to trap you. No, believe it or not, it's actually you that's trying to trap you. Now again, James is going to develop this later on in the book, but for now we have our principle. Here it is, principle number four. You can have joy when life is hard if you take personal responsibility. You can have joy when life is hard if you take personal responsibility. It is absolutely critical that you recognize your own role in the way that temptations take hold in the human heart. Critical. There's something lurking in each one of us that will pull us away from our relationship with God. James calls it our desire. Paul, in his letters, calls it the flesh, the sinful nature. We're sinners, not just by choice, but by nature. God made human beings in his own image, but through the choice of our first parents to rebel, each and every person born afterward inherits this spiritual corruption so thorough that it, that it will continue to plague us to the very day that we die. The flesh is constantly scheming to rebel. Now, this is going to require a little bit of honesty on the part of all of us. You know that this is true. You know deep down inside that there is a part of you that leans away from obedience, isn't there? There's a part of you that stubbornly refuses to submit to the goodness of God, that doubts his every word. And, and I don't want to discount the fact that you may have been raised in a difficult home, that your circumstances make it harder to obey and easier to sin, that your physical makeup, even the very chemicals swimming around in your system, might make you have to deal with something that somebody else doesn't have to deal with. I acknowledge that you might have some difficulties that others don't face, and I would even go on to agree with you that some of those realities are absolutely not your fault, nor is James asking us to take responsibility for choices that other people make or to, to take responsibility for the millions of realities that lie outside of our control. But at the end of the day, you are the one who chooses whether to sin or not. You're not just a robot. Your life is not sealed by the fates. You choose it. You experience desire and you give in. You want to know why you struggle to find joy when life is hard? I'll tell you why. Maybe it's because you're blaming everybody else. And you refuse to take personal responsibility. If you want to have joy when life is hard, then it is absolutely imperative that you take responsibility for your own desires and your own choices. Because here's what you're doing. When you blame everybody else but yourself, what you're really doing, what you're really saying is, God's at fault. God, you didn't give me what I need to navigate this difficulty. You didn't provide. You're not good. You don't have my best interests at heart. I can't trust you. I won't trust you. It's somebody else's fault. It's not mine. Is it any wonder that you lack wisdom? 
that you don't know what to do? That you don't even know how to have joy when life is hard? That you have zero endurance when the going gets tough? Of course you're going to struggle in this way because you refuse to take responsibility for the way that your desires, your flesh, your sinful nature has tempted you to sin and you've chosen to do it. And I just wonder if the barrier between you and the joy of the Lord today is that you are struggling with life-dominating sin, sinful anxiety, substance abuse, addiction to pornography, obsession with work, and you are blaming everything under the sun except the one person who is choosing those habits, you. Take personal responsibility. Understand the value of a trial. Go to the right person for wisdom, embrace the upside-down values of the kingdom, take personal responsibility. The fifth and final principle is found in verses 16 through 18. James tells us, do not be deceived. Why? Because what he is about to say is an area where the enemy has sowed deception at every turn. Every good gift, he says, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. If you don't know these verses, Read them over and over again. Memorize them. Meditate on them. What a critical truth, a truth for us to learn on Father's Day. Here we are. We're blaming God for all the bad things that take place in our lives, even blaming him for the sinful choices we ourselves make, but that's not the God we serve. He isn't the God who tries to trip us up. He doesn't give us temptations that we can't bear. No, he is the one who gives us all good things. He's the one who sends us every blessing that we enjoy. And do you know why that is? It's because he's our father. He's the father of lights. Here's principle number five. You can have joy when life is hard if you remember who your father is. I think what James means to do here is employ a sort of double meaning in verse 18. He says, of his own will, he brought us forth. God is our father in a very generic sense. He made us. In him we live and move and have our being. But I think what he's primarily speaking about here is the way in which God has reached into creation and brought about new life in the hearts of those who believe through the proclamation of the life-giving gospel of God. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What a blessing it is to enjoy the things that God has made, to be a part of his creation, but it is infinitely greater to be made anew by the word of truth, to be born again from above, to be rescued from a dying earth and destined for the new creation. There are some of you within the sound of my voice today, watching online, listening to a recording later on, who will never ever be able to really have joy when life is hard because you're missing this crucial reality. God's not your father in this specific sense. And it's not because you don't make the cut. None of us makes the cut. It's not because you didn't do something right. None of us did anything right to earn a spot in God's family. It's, it's not because he's passing you over. You're still alive. Time has not run out yet. Friends, I'm here to tell you that our Father is so good, so unchanging in His mercy and His grace, that when I was still a sinner, a rebel, destined for wrath and hell-bent on disobedience, then, not when I had cleaned myself up, 
But when I was still wallowing in filth, God showed his love toward me by sending his son Jesus into the world to take my place. He earned a righteousness I could never obtain. He took the punishment I should rightfully suffer. And then God raised him from the dead so that all who believe could be given new life. And I just want to say that anyone who receives him on the authority of Scripture, anyone who believes in his name has the right to be called the son or the daughter of God. My friend, don't stay outside the doors. Come into the banquet. Gather around his table. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Be forgiven. Be accepted. It's true that some of you don't have joy when life is hard because you need God to become your father in this specific sense. But there are many here who do not walk in all that God has for you because even though God is your father, you brought him down to your level. Friends, it's so important for you to recognize that the father of lights is altogether different from your father. It's Father's Day and I don't want to dunk on dads. But listen, dads are, are changeful. We can be a little moody. I know, it's surprising. We get tired, we get worn out, but our Heavenly Father does not change. His mercies are new every morning. With Him there is no variation or shadow due to change. Earthly dads fall short, sometimes spectacularly so. But the Father of lights will never fail you. His love is never ending. His faithfulness is never ending. His compassions are never ending. And I'm telling you that you can have joy even now, even when life is hard, when she breaks up with you, when the bill comes in the mail, when you have to quit your job to take care of mom, when the procedure isn't covered, when your child's pediatrician says, we need to talk, when life is hard... You can have joy if you understand the value of a trial. If you go to the right person for wisdom. If you embrace the upside-down values of the kingdom. If you take personal responsibility. And most of all, if you remember and never forget who your father is. Folks, let's have joy today. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we... Don't ever for one second want to take for granted the way that we can address you as Father. You are infinitely good beyond our comprehension and mighty beyond all imagination, and yet you invite us to call you Father? We didn't earn that. Your word says, if any man says that he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. We don't want to lie before you today. So the truth of the matter is that sometimes we see a trial as something to just get out of. We don't see the value of it. Sometimes we go to somebody else for wisdom before we go to you. Sometimes we embrace the, the world's values instead of the values of your kingdom. Sometimes we uh, forget who you are. Sometimes we fail to take personal responsibility. And Lord, we're asking on the basis of the blood of Christ that you would forgive and that you would share your goodness and your joy with us. Father, I know that in a room this size, 
many, many, many of us are either walking through a trial, coming out of a trial, or about to go into a time of trial. But Lord, we've read from your word, you want us to have joy. And so I pray that you and your grace, by your spirit, would bring it about. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.